The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, Harvest. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Tony, worship team, leading us in uh, such a sweet time of worship. Really appreciate you guys. Uh, I'm so excited you're here. My name is Kenan Vaughn. If I haven't met you, I've got the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Harvest and just really glad you've joined us this morning. We're in a study of Exodus. If you want to begin heading that way, this morning we will be in uh, chapter 11. So chapter 11 of Exodus is where we'll be. I want to just say a few things uh, before I get to the text this morning. One is just to underscore one more time what Pastor Nyack was just talking about. I know Steve said this, but he's, the, he's our primary partner in overseas missions and it is really cool that we get to be a part of a, a, a movement of the gospel among an unreached people group. And as uh, was said in the missions moment, that Pastor Nyack's the first one that God opened his eyes among his people to the truth of the gospel. And now he is pastoring, he is uh, planting churches in villages all over where there is no witness for the gospel. And, and has this school where these children, predominantly Hindu children, can come and learn about the one true God. And so just to be able to be a part of that in some way, our family uh, sponsors a student. I would really encourage you to do this. Uh, you get a picture, which we put under uh, the glass of our breakfast room table so we can pray for uh, that child and the missionaries we support. Uh, they mentioned uh, the, the price, and there's cards like this in the back at Connection Central where you can get all the details and a picture of a child that you can support. You can support them all the way through high school. And I'd encourage you, even as Steve mentioned, that uh, we, we're going to be taking three trips a year to India uh, to help Pastor and I continually plant these churches. And, and we get to bring this uh, training piece to help train these new pastors and leaders uh, in the uh, foundational elements of the gospel and ministry. So crazy the privilege we've got to partner with Pastor Nyack. Hopefully you'll sponsor a child, join our church body, maybe one day go over with us on one of these trips and meet that child your family sponsored. Encourage you to do that. Secondly, I want to say this. Um, we, have, uh, we are really in need, uh, a lot of needs, but there's one really glaring one that I want to bring before you, our body, this morning. And it's in terms of our child care. And so I've talked about this some. I haven't spoken about it in some time. But we, we really have a, a need. And next week will be a huge week. It's the fifth week of Sundays. Most folks sign up for first, second, third, or fourth. So when a fifth week comes, we really need more volunteers. But it's not just next week. I asked Braxton and Kevin and Tracy to just shoot me straight on where we were. And they said, we, we need another 60 or 80 people that would give one hour a month. So what I mean by that is um, one service time once a month. So you can still be a part of corporate worship and the other service time that morning. I know many of you serve, and I'm really thankful. And I know if you are one of those serving that you would amen this announcement because we need more. Look, it's one of the greatest gifts in our body that we have so many children. Uh, I, don't, I don't even want to call that a problem. That's just a blessing. And, um, and we really need more volunteers uh, for safety and because we want to have a real ministry going on. We want to actually meet those kids where they are and have enough uh, people to love them and help them understand the truths they're being taught. We need more folks. Now, I've said before publicly, I would love it. Maybe it's idealistic. I'd love it if our young moms uh, were not at least the first line of recruits in this. They are doing this all week long. I, I watch one just pour herself out to the point of exhaustion and would love her and others in that season, especially with the young kids, but really just in child-rearing stage uh, of all ages, to be able to take a break and come and worship and let the rest of us, which would be young ladies that uh, don't have children, um, young men that uh, uh, have never born a child, that would be all of us, okay, and, uh, and any of those that are in the stage of maybe empty nest, and I, this is a prime opportunity. I don't want to say the, the mothers cannot, please understand, if you would like to serve, uh, have at it, but I, I don't want them to be forced to. I would love it if uh, our body would really pick up. So look, this is kind of a like, uh, line in the sand moment. We've got we've to we've go after this now. 
or we'll, be, uh, we'll have to be asking those moms to come man the fort. So please join us. Uh, by the end of this message, there's a, there's a good chance you'll have forgotten that I made this announcement, and so maybe make a note right now. I would really encourage you not to wait on 60 or 80 other people to do this, but please take an hour right after the service in Connection Central. There are sign-up sheets. Please go and take an hour if there's any way you can do that. That'd be a great opportunity to meet a need in our body. Finally, since I'm just uh, uh, giving a few kind of housekeeping announcements. I was thinking this week, I, I had a, uh, somebody ask me this. I, I regularly will have someone ask me uh, why I don't preach every week. And you know, it's been six or eight months probably, maybe even a year since I've said why. So I just want to kind of uh, hit this drumbeat one more time. Uh, there's a reason that we team teach here at Harvest. The first reason is, uh, there's a banner right there that says church planning. I believe in this next 12 months, by God's grace, we'll have a, our uh, chance to plant our first church in the city. We're really hoping to do that in Whitehaven with Vincent. We're really excited. Listen, if we're serious about church planting, we've got to be serious about raising up uh, uh, church planters. And I don't think you can just do that in a classroom. It's like anything else in life. There's got to be on-the-job experience. And one part of being a faithful pastor is going to be able to faithfully preach and teach and divide God's word. If we're as a church going to commit to that, then we've got to commit to giving guys opportunity to preach so we can see and shepherd and teach and help and develop. And so uh, that's something we are serious about. That's proven in, by the fact that I'm not preaching every week. And so we really want to be true to that. Over the next 30 years, uh, I'm hoping God gives us a chance to plant lots of churches in this city and beyond. So that will always be a regular part of our diet. Secondly, and I just want to speak to this personally, um, there's, there's a reality of a weight that my family personally will will carry when I preach. Now, it is the privilege of my stewardship of the gospel, so don't hear me wrong. I'm not uh, asking for you to feel sorry for me. It is the delight of my heart to preach the gospel. But it, it, there is a, a, uh, it's a heavier week for my family. Anytime that it's my turn up, uh, when I, the bo- and they always ask me, Sunday or Monday, the boys ask me, hey, Daddy, who's preaching next week? And, and because they just know there's just a different rhythm. And um, because, um, this may surprise some of you guys, I do have a few other things on my, on my plate uh, that, uh, that, again, are a joy. I mean, I love meeting with folks and marital counseling and crisis counseling and meeting new members and, and talking to folks that are visiting, like the, and leadership development and vision casting with our staff and beyond, all of which is a huge joy. Okay, but when it's preaching week, there's just a, a whole added, I'm going to need to spend a lot of time in God's Word, a lot of time in preparation, and there's an emotional weight to that that carries through the weekend. So when the boys ask, what I would envision is if I say, guys, Daddy's up next week. I would hope there's chest bumping, huge dog pile, everybody's fired up. But uh, you may be as surprised as I am. That's not what happens. They don't mourn. They support me, praise God. But they kind of go, okay. Like, they get, they dig. We, we understand. Um, see you next Sunday. I'm just teasing. It's not that bad. Uh, but they understand. And, um, but here's what I will tell you, and I'll just make this plea before you. It would not be the healthiest rhythm for our family if I were preaching every week. It is far more healthy for me to be able to take those breaks, focus on other areas of my job, and really maximize those moments even emotionally and physically with my family. I would ask you even to pray for my family. I don't want to be a good pastor at Harvest at the expense of being pastor dad. That's my first priority. I would ask you guys to pray for our family. Uh, my, one of my fears is my kids would somehow grow up resenting the church because of how much daddy gave to it. And boy, I want the opposite to be true. I want them to just rejoice in the fellowship of the believers, the preaching of God's word. I want them to maybe, maybe in one day, it's a lot to expect from a five-year-old, from an eight-year-old, but maybe one day they would cherish those moments when I'm digging in so that I can feed uh, the body and, and, and they'd be in that with me even more. But for right now, I'd ask you to pray for them in that and to understand that's just the season of life that I really wanna be careful with and be sensitive to the needs of my family. 
And then the final thing I would say is, boy, I've got this thing that uh, I've got a disdain for a church that's kind of the uh, celebrity pastor church. That I don't even like to hear it when somebody says that's so-and-so's church or so-and-so's church. I just want us to be the church of Jesus Christ. I want the gifts. that There's men that have teaching gifts that are being raised up as pastors and elders. Let's operate within the gifts of our body. Let's all be edified and let's be mature about that. And, uh, and I think that's a healthier thing. I do not want this church to be built around any one man's personality, especially not mine. So that's why we do what we do at Harvest. I'll say that maybe six months again from now, but there's a lot of new people, new ears that have not heard it. That's why we do what we do, and I, uh, I hope that's something that you can be excited about with us. Well, this week the text is Exodus 11. Uh, if you guys would stand to your feet, I'm going to read through this. Ten verses here. Let's see what the Lord would say. The Lord says to Moses, Exodus 11, 1, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That's where he's going to take Pharaoh to, drive you away. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." All these and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, Praise be to God. You may have a seat. Father, I ask this morning that as I uh, teach and proclaim uh, the glorious wonder of the gospel through your word this morning as we see uh, evidence of um, not just that you are a God that demands our obedience, but that, um, that it would be joyful obedience that we would give if we understood truly who you are as God. Will you give us that paradigm shift that many of us need to hear just as Pharaoh needed to hear it in his day, we need to hear it in ours. Will you teach us this morning? I pray that I would decrease, I must, so that you may and must increase. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let me say this. So normally we'll take a text, we'll kind of work verse by verse. This text is a little bit of a culmination of last week's message and a little bit of a transitionary text before next week's message. So we're kind of caught in the middle. I had the notion of... um, just given a one-liner about, and then God predicted the death of uh, the firstborn and then moving right into 12. But I think there's something to be seen here and to be um, uh, dealt with and digested in this text that I don't want us to miss. I don't want to rush through this. So we're still going to deal with the plagues for one more week. Many of you came probably excited about the Passover. If you know your Bible, that's coming. Exodus 12, part of 13. We'll be there next week. One of the most epic Uh, redeeming moments in all of scripture, so I'm very excited. But I'm excited about this week, because even in this transitionary moment where all we get is a a prophecy, all we get is God saying, hey Moses, here's gonna be the deal, we're gonna have one more plague, and it will bring Pharaoh to his knees, even though his heart's been hardened, he's gonna drive you out, and that's gonna be the death of the firstborn. And when I read that, probably like you just a minute ago when I said, and here's what's gonna happen, the death of the firstborn, not just of Pharaoh, but even against uh, the slave girls, Son, it's something in your heart, if you're like me, it just kind of dropped, like, gosh, that is so hard. 
Like really, the, just a, we read the story, but just really think that the death of the firstborn all over Egypt, that is, that is incredibly hard and harsh sounding. And so I asked the question anew this week, gosh, why did, why, why did God do it that way? Why did he have to do it that way? Did he? Why did he choose to do it that way? Couldn't God have kind of microwaved this thing? Like, and even in the sense of God knew that ultimately it was going to come to the um, deliverance by the death of the firstborn. Why all the other nine plagues leading up to it? Like, like why was there such a slow, culminating experience of judgment after judgment leading up to this death? I just was still asking the question why. Steve did such a good job last week in walking us through the actual plagues and showing how out of the book of Numbers um, it was that God was not just judging Egypt, he was judging all their false gods. Like every one of those plagues had to deal with, they had a, a frog god, and it was God judging that that's not really God, that I am God. And then the, the fly god, they had a fly god, and a Nile god, and every one of those uh, uh, parallel to God in Egypt. And the real, the real emphasis last week was the idea that Pharaoh, what do you do when, um, uh, when God is revealing to you that he is the one true God among your false gods? Well, Pharaoh continued to turn to false gods, that would never ultimately satisfy the first thing he did. The second thing he did was falsely repent. Say, God, uh, I repent before you because he didn't want consequence, but he never turned and worshiped the Lord. And the third thing he did was ignore God. And the warning was, don't be like Pharaoh. As God reveals to you the truth of who he was, as the dire circumstances of your life press in on your need. Don't turn to false gods. Don't false repent to avoid consequence without really knowing God. And don't ignore him. And uh, that was rich. But this is, I mean, this is four chapters of Scripture, really, where there is so much theological implication and application that I didn't want us to just rush straight to the Passover from there. I feel like, personally, I'm still full. I'm, I've still got this meal in my belly. I was with my uh, family on the beach last week, which was so much fun. And um, we heard about a breakfast place that is, like, you know, unbelievable, great, fluffy pancakes, waffles, all the stuff the Vaughn boys love. And... And so I told the guys we're going to go tomorrow, and we're excited. Well, that night we went out. I had my sister from Houston, her kids, and another sister in town, her kids, my mother, my in-laws. I mean, there was like 20-something of us. We went out to dinner the night before, and we ate a lot. And so we came back to the, the place we were staying, and, you know, everybody's kind of laid out, and you're know, just kind of rolling to bed and kind of climbing and just grumbling. I said, all right, guys, breakfast, 8.30, we're going to the place. And everybody's like, oh, Dad, No. And my, my father-in-law said, you know, I think I'm a little too full on what we just ate to even think about another meal tomorrow. And I was in the text this week. I originally was studying the Passover. And I go, you know what? I'm just full from the plagues and the reality of what happened in God's judgment. And to rush into this incredible moment of redemption, I need a little more time to digest. And I think 11 affords us that moment. It's God saying, pause. All that has happened leads up to a moment, which we will see described, the death of the firstborn and the Passover judgment, which is this great foreshadowing of redemption. It's a reality of redemption in that generation, foreshadowing in ours, it's coming. But I wanted to pause and just say, why did God do it this way? What application is there for us? And here's where I think it unwinds. Remember in chapter five, when, uh, I'll read it to you, in chapter five, one, when Moses went to Pharaoh and he says, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may Hold a feast to me or worship me. Let them go so they may worship me in the wilderness. And do you remember Pharaoh's response? Right there in verse 2 he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and listen to his voice? Now I want you to hear, to hear that question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That was the trigger point for the next ten plagues. The last one being the death of the firstborn. All God answering the question, who's the Lord and why should I obey him? Now I want to ask, is that a relevant question for us? 
We think that was Pharaoh's issue, didn't really understand God, didn't know why he was going. I'll be honest with you. If anybody else in here struggles with obedience or struggles with the motive behind obedience, if obedience ever becomes rote discipline, I don't know, there's a fresh word for you today. Because God answered Pharaoh's cry with a series of plagues, and he did it for a reason. In fact, I want to give you three reasons why we have the ten plagues in answer of Pharaoh's question. Who's the Lord? Why should I obey him? First, understand that the context in that day, Pharaoh, his culture was one of religious pluralism. Okay, that means there's a, a, a people who worship all kinds of little g-gods. They, uh, they revere all kinds of gods. Again, Steve went through ten different false gods or nine different false gods last week that they saw. They were people that worshiped all kinds of gods. Pharaoh's problem is not that Moses has a god. His problem is not that. His problem is why should I acknowledge him or obey him above all these other gods? That's his problem. And I want to tell you, in America today, if you're ever going to try to share the gospel in our culture, there's a good chance you're going to find someone who doesn't have a problem with you being a Christian. Their problem is that you would, um, that you would uh, bring with you the conviction that they ought to, to be a Christian, that that would seem intolerant, that somehow your uh, uh, understanding of God or, or belief in how life ought to be lived under his rule and authority and uh, pattern for salvation is somehow better than theirs and whatever they found or whatever they worship or whoever they serve. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where, it's because we have a somewhat of a religious pluralistic culture. There's a lot of universalism here. It says worship whoever you want, just don't tell me who to worship. Pastor Nyack, who was just up here in our missions moment, that's a uh, religiously pluralistic culture. That's Hindu. You know what they do in Hindu? They worship all kinds, literally tens of thousands of gods. They don't have a problem with you saying you worship Jesus, even that they ought to worship Jesus. They have a problem when it's Christ alone. They have a problem with one true God above all the others. That's where the problem is. So here's what God says to start. And let me just kind of give this to you. He starts with, uh, right before the first plague in chapter 7, he says this. Uh, Moses comes forward and he says in 717, he's about to smite, God's about to smite the Nile River. And Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, by this, not just the smiting of the Nile, but the plagues to come, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Amidst your culture of pagan deities, I'm the Lord. And then you get to the second plague where the frogs come in, largely as a result of the Nile being smitten and turned to blood and where all these frogs, thousands and thousands of frogs pile into the village and and, uh, bring devastation. And uh, Moses says, hey, Pharaoh, just let me know when you've had enough. Like, just say when and I'll ask God to stop this. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And so Moses says, it'll be so. I'll read his exact words. Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. What is God saying so far? Hey, Pharaoh, why should you obey me? I am God. And there is no other God like me. Don't be confused. I'm not a God. I'm the God. And then just at the uh, plague of the flies, the sixth plague. Isn't that crazy? A plague of flies. Ugh. And, and just for the play wise, Moses says to Pharaoh, which is the word of the Lord, he says, look, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be flies, swarm, all of your land, all of your homes, all of your livestock, everything. It's gonna lead to the epidemic on the livestock, but here's the deal. You'll notice the flies will not touch Goshen. There'll be no flies there among the Israelites. That's where the Israelites stayed. And here's what he said on this one. He said, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of my people. I am a living God. Now, Pharaoh, who is God? that I should obey him. Moses, thus said the Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord, 
There is no God besides me, and I'm a living God. Transcendent overall, imminent right there with you. That's the response. That's why, Pharaoh, you shouldn't worship any dead, false God, because there's one living God. I've been reading church history to Caleb, which is so much fun, encouraging you with kids to do, uh, to do this. And I want to read uh, some of these same books to every one of my kids, because I really want to know this stuff. It is rich. And uh, we were reading the story of Boniface this week, and, um, and this is 722. Uh, uh, AD, and Boniface is going out as a missionary from the Roman Empire to um, the Germanic warrior tribes. And Boniface is along the Rhine River, and he comes upon this village. And, um, and, and, and even as his peers in here walking the village, they go through the sacred grove of Thor. Okay, that's their, that's their primary god. But there's altars everywhere to all these false gods. By the way, this is historical nonfiction. This is as recorded as it happened. And they're looking at some of the inscriptions on the different altars. And, uh, and right in the middle of it all, there's this huge tree, which is the Oak of Thor. And, uh, and just off the tree, among the other altars, there's a small little altar to Jesus Christ. And so um, Boniface recognizes immediately, these people recognize Jesus, just not Jesus as God or certainly the one true God. So here's what happens. Um, Boniface begins to share with the people that all these other gods are false gods. There's only one God who is alive today, rose from the grave, a living God. And the people say, you're going to have to take that before our elders. That's not what we believe. So Boniface and his uh, two friend missionaries, partners in the gospel, go before the elders. And Boniface shares before the elders the gospel. And the elders say, look, we don't need you to share this with us. We already know. We already have Jesus. There's an altar over there. We already got him. We, we have all the gods. And the, and the thinking there was, we want to know about every god that's there so that we can honor and revere and not stand before judgment to any of the gods. We want to placate the wrath of all the gods. That's how we live our life, in fear of our god's judgment. And we got Jesus. He's there. You can go on to the next village. Boniface says, no Actually, that's the problem. I saw that altar. And the problem is Jesus is not a God among gods. He's the one true living God. And unless you worship him, you cannot be saved. You, uh, and the people there said, what you are saying will anger the gods. You must leave in the morning. And so Boniface goes back. And uh, probably in his little thatch hut with his missionaries, he's very troubled through the night, wondering how to reach these people, and a great storm comes. I mean, wind, rain, hail, like brutal storm. And he realized Thor was not uh, just the god of power and of war, but the god of thunder. He was the god who brought the storm. And Boniface knew these people are going to interpret this storm, and they're going to say Thor was, was angry about the gospel that has been shared. Boniface knew this. And so he wrestled through the night. What do I do? I don't want to leave here. Them thinking Thor has spoken, a false god has spoken, and to diminish the truth of the gospel, and then I leave. I can't leave on that. And so they come first thing at daybreak, and they say, get out. And he says, will you come with me first to the sacred grove? And the elder said, why? He said, just follow me. I will tell you when we get there. And he goes with the missionaries. They go to the sacred grove, and the elders follow. And so the village follows. And he gets there, and the elder says, Thor is angry with you. There was a storm in the night. You need to leave, you and your uh, gospel of Jesus. And Boniface stands next to the sacred oak of Thor, and he takes an axe. And he says, the only thing I know to do is to tell you this. I challenge your God, Thor. And he takes the axe, and the people shudder. And he takes a huge hack right into this oak. 
And the people begin to scream and shudder and declare that Thor will judge you. And he keeps chopping and chopping and chopping until that great oak falls right in the middle of the sacred grove. And the whole ground shakes. And Boniface stands upon that tree and says, your God Thor is no God at all. And an elder stands. And an elder says, if Thor will not defend himself then we shan't either. And that village became a village of Christ worshipers. Boniface would have to do this largely in village after village until one village finally slaughtered him about 53 years later. I want to tell you something. If you're going to minister in a culture of religious pluralism as the one we live in, the first truth that God wants you to declare, and you got to know it to declare it, is that there's one true God He alone is God, and he's alive and with us this very moment. Amen? Pharaoh, why should you obey him? That's why. But that's not the only reason. Second reason. You guys know in Genesis, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, there was darkness over all the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness, and then the Word of God came forth and set the Spirit of God free to move and to create and to bring all the elements of the universe together into this self-sustaining, interdependent, cohering whole, this perfect and beautiful planet for us as humans to inhabit, and then God creates us as his vice regents and says, steward it, subdue it, multiply and subdue the earth, and walk with me and know me and obey me and worship me. And creation is set forth. The natural order is set forth. Now, when man disobeys, when Adam and Eve disobey, when their hearts grow hard in the garden, when they listen to the lie and they rebel against God, what happens? Things begin to slowly unravel. They are cast outside the garden. Now they'll have to contend with the natural order. They'll have to work the ground. There'll be thorns and thistles. There'll be uh, labor uh, pains in childbirth. Pharaoh says, why should I obey God? God speaks here and he gives us as creator, not just as Emmanuel, God with us, not just as El Shaddai, God sovereign, not just um, as Yahweh, God who is personal, but as creator, God. Here's something God knows about you and I. He created us to, listen carefully, to know him, worship him, obey him, and steward his creation. And God knows something because he's creator, because he is the living God and creator. He knows if we don't, If our hearts grow hard as Pharaoh's grew hard, if we rebel, God knows that our lives will subtly but surely unravel. How far? To the point of darkness leading even unto death. For God to give us his commands is not a God who is is, uh, uh, trying to somehow control his people in anxiety. He's not a God that is insecure in his sovereignty and needs us to obey, so he presses us under his thumb with commands. That's not God. God mercifully and lovingly gives us his word so we can live lives that don't unravel to darkness leading to death. How would he know which commands would lead to life and flourishing? Because he created us. Only he knows. And so example, God says, don't put any other God before me. Don't, here, translation, don't love anything more than you love me. Anything good or bad or sinful, don't love anything more than you love. Uh, Jesus would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And so in a world like America today, where we um, have a culture of workaholism, 
What if you love your work more than you love God? Work's a good thing. God gave us wor- a work to do. What if you love your work? Now, most of you would probably not acknowledge that, at least not in church. I love my job so much. I love it even more than God. You would probably say, no, I love my job, or maybe I don't love my job, but I work hard. But not as much as God. But let me ask you, what does your life say? Some of you, if we just looked at your life and how much you give of yourself, mind, heart, energy, resources, to your job versus what you give to the Lord, how strategically you give here versus how strategically, how intentionally you invest here versus intentionally you invest. Many of you would say, hey man, I don't know. It looks like to me you love work and maybe the security it gives you, maybe the identity it gives you, maybe the money it gives you, but you love that more than you. That's more important to you than God. That's a good way to say it, more important to you. So what happens? God doesn't look up at a workaholic who loves and values work more than him and say, all right, Sprained ankle. He, he doesn't look there for, he's not Thor up there trying to throw a lightning bolt down and give you some physical consequence. Here's what God does. He grieves that you don't understand the created order of subdue and obey, and therefore your life will now unravel and there will be natural consequences set in motion by who he is and what he's created and how he's created you. So he grieves as you let work dominate your life to the point that you sacrifice your family on the altar of your workaholism. He grieves that family disintegration. He grieves that when your boss comes in and gives you bad news about uh, being fired or transitioned or changes or up, upping the workload or you're gonna have to travel more, whatever it may be, he grieves that now you're gonna experience an emotional weight that will literally, dis- you'll disintegrate emotionally. And he grieves that if you give 10, 20, 30 years to this pattern of workaholism where work is everything, that physically you'll disintegrate. God's not mocking. God is realizing that you have chosen to have a hard heart against the truth of his word, and now your life is unraveling. I'll give you another example, the election. Um, some of you are experiencing a little bit of unraveling. A couple weeks out, some of you are feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of, uh, it's one thing to be zealously discouraged. <laughs> but it's another thing to be owned, consumed, anxious, uh, depressed, angry, rage, bitter. Here, one of two things is going to happen. Either, either, that's because you've made your political loyalties ultimate above your loyalties to the Lord. You've put a belief in a political party or candidate above your belief in a sovereign God. So here's what happens. If your candidate loses, I mean, you're going to go emotionally off the deep end. You're going to be destroyed. Maybe it's for a week, a couple weeks, year, years, I don't know. You're going to be angry at your fellow patriots. You're going to be embittered by uh, this leader that has been elected. You're going to, I mean, this thing will literally break relationships that you have with others who voted in a different direction. It'll unravel or your candidate will win. And what will happen is you'll be on this uh, just short chapter of euphoria before you inevitably realize that even he or even she won't bring you the peace and the joy and the, uh, everything that your heart desires and the prosperity for our nation, that there is no politician who can be a functional savior and you either gotta wake up immediately or sometime to that truth and then your life unravels if you've made that ultimate. There's another command in scripture, forgive one another. Just trying to pick one that we all relate to. Forgive one another. You may ever have a hard time forgiving somebody. What happens, you're unwilling to forgive. 
Is God up there going, how do I punish that? Let's see. God doesn't do it. He grieves. He knows what's about to happen. And that your bitter heart that's unwilling to forgive someone else will slowly become hard, and that bitterness will turn to resentment, and that resentment will turn to control, which will either express itself in anger or anxiety, and that relationship will disintegrate. You guys see this? Hey, Pharaoh, why should I, uh, who is your God that I should obey him? Well, here's the truth. If you don't, let God demonstrate slowly but surely the unraveling of the natural order of his creation to the point of darkness leading even unto death. That will be your life. And there's a third reason that I think is the most compelling. The third reason why Pharaoh and every one of us ought to consider obedience to the Lord, to the one true God, is this. Do you notice in the plagues how God seems to be kind of slow playing some of the judgment? Like before the hailstorm, he literally says, hey, Moses, tell Pharaoh I'm going to bring hail throughout all the land and uh, tell him to get his cattle out of the fields and get them in the barns because the hail's coming so they don't get destroyed. What kind of judgment is that? He actually does that two or three times. He says, warn him and tell him how to avoid the severity of the judgment. What is God doing? If the goal was simply to bring them to the point of sending Israel out, he would not be telling them how to avoid the severity of the consequence of the judgment. God is reserving his judgment. Why is he doing it? Here's why. The point of the judgment is salvation. Most obviously to the Israelites, that, they, that, that Egypt be brought to their knees and Israel delivered. That judgment bring Israelite salvation, but not merely Israelite salvation. God is also interested in Egyptian salvation. Do we see any of that in the slow playing of the ten plagues versus God just jumping right to, we're going to kill the firstborn or any other supernatural way he wanted to free his people? Yes, it says in chapter 9 that even some of Pharaoh's officials fear God and begin to serve him. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is slow, uh, uh, patient, not wanting anyone to perish. We see the character of God bringing judgment after judgment. Everyone almost like a warning shot fired that your life will unravel to darkness lest you wise up and repent and obey me. He's merciful to the Israelite and the Egyptian. And the third reason, you know what he says in uh, chapter 9? Steve read this verse, but I'm going to read it again. 9, 16, but for this purpose... I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Judgment was for the purpose of salvation. Listen, our God is not salvation or judgment. It's salvation through judgment. That the Israelite might be saved. That the Egyptian religious pluralist might be saved. And not merely salvation in that generation. Do you know why I wanted to preach on this one more week? Because I was convicted in this verse. God said, I am going to slow play these judgments to teach you about the character of my mercy and compassion and grieving with those who have hard hearts against me. And I'm going to do it so that the whole world might know. And so here we are, 3,500 years later, telling a story about what God did in a day that would culminate in the redeeming of a generation that would foreshadow the redeeming of every generation and we retell that story again and again until he comes again because his desire is the whole world knows and here's what the whole world needs to know the creator the maker 
became unmade so that we could be recreated or remade in him, that we could be brought out of darkness and into light. Listen to me, that's what's unique about Christ among small g gods. Do you know that 1,500 years later after this was written, darkness would unnaturally pervade the earth again? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, the gospel writer Matthew records in chapter 27 saying from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. What's happening in darkness? Hearts hardened. God's judgment against the rebellion of man. Darkness. And in the ninth hour, the Son of God, rejected by his own people and by the enemies of God alike, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why is there enmity between me and my Father? And he hangs his head, breathes his last, he literally dies, the earth quakes, the rocks split. Natural or supernatural? Might have seemed natural, but we know better. And here's what we know happened on the cross. On the cross, the plagues of God's justice fell on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He literally, like Pharaoh, became the enemy of God and bore our sin on his shoulders. On the cross, darkness. Why? Because Jesus, the ultimate judge, came not merely to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. That's what's different about Christianity. Every other religion, you work your way to God. We're the only one where God worked his way to us in our brokenness and darkness. And by the provision of his own son, the living God, he literally received the just consequence of the darkness of our rebellion. So that in Christ we receive unmerited favor, which is grace. That in Christ we don't have to experience the darkness of a life of worshiping false gods that leads ultimately unto death. We can experience the newness of life in him. That, Pharaoh, is why you obey God. In response to his love for hard-hearted sinners like us. That's why we obey him. Pharaoh asked the question, who is your God, Moses? Why should I obey him? Moses' response, thus saith the Lord, I am the God. Pharaoh, I'm God alone. Put away your false gods. I'm the living God who's right here amidst you. Pharaoh, if you don't obey me, hear this with compassion. Your life will unravel because I've created you to know me and to love me and to serve me and to worship me. And if you don't, you're going to experience discouragement, darkness, and death. But Pharaoh, know this. I have loved my people in their darkness so much that I won't merely bring judgment. I will bear judgment in their place and for their sin. Pharaoh, that's who I am. Mo Moses would say, thus saith the Lord. That's why we obey the living God. Amen? Now stay tuned because next week 
we're going to see how this prophecy, this prediction, this foretelling of the Lord, of what redemption looks like, we're gonna, we're, he's going to put meat on the bone, and we're going to see the epic moment of the redeeming of a nation. We're going to see salvation through judgment. Because our God saves, even through the consequence of our sin. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, that we can just digest some of this, this great moment that you said is a moment that will help all the world know who you are. And so we proclaim it, we preach it, we study it, we marinate on it. God, let these truths nourish us that we, every one of us, sometimes sits in Pharaoh's seat. Why am I obeying the Lord again? Why am I living my life around the truth of God's word? That we be reminded that the word fall afresh on us today. He's the living God. His word is a demonstration of his mercy that we might live in light and peace and fruitful enjoyment of that which he's created us to enjoy ultimately him. And that we remember that he loved us enough that he demonstrated that even in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, our hearts are full of joy of a God who doesn't seek merely to judge but to save through judgment. We thank you ahead of time for the Passover lamb. Can't wait to look longingly at that scripture this next week. I pray our hearts be full of the joy of the living God who loves us and proved it on the cross. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.